Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again to your word now, as we think about your Holy Spirit, as we think about our very deep questions of life, of death, of the next life, we ask please that you would teach us, that you would show us the place of your Spirit in our lives, that you would give us the confidence, the certainty of knowing that we are yours, and that you are ours, and so knowing, Father, that our future is guaranteed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you certain that you are going to heaven? Can you be certain? Is it possible to have confidence, to have assurance of what's going to come after death? In some ways, this is the biggest question any of us could ever face. What's next? What's after death? What is? Is there an afterlife? There's all sorts of answers in the world, aren't there? From the, 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 the near-death experience, oh, there's the light at the end of the tunnel, and then, I don't know why they always seem to have lights at the end. I think maybe the, the doctors are in cahoots and they're all just shining torches into people's eyes or something, right? But there, is there anything next? The psychic who says, oh, I've been in touch with the people on the other side, they say it's all okay. Richard Dawkins very famously uh, he and, and, a, and a group of like-minded atheists uh, purchased billboards on the sides of buses in London that said there is, well, probably no God. So you might as well just get on with your life. There's nothing after death, says the atheist. The agnostic, well, we, we can't really know if there's anything after death. You know, the answer to this question has a profound impact on our lives now. If there's nothing after death, well, sure, eat, drink, me, marry, live for the now. That's all there is. If there is something, and if we could know it, if we could have some sort of certainty about what comes next, it would free us up in this life. Now, religious groups, of course, have varying answers. If, if you're a Muslim, you have no confidence. You have no certainty of what comes next. You live your life seeking to please Allah and maybe in the end you will. But maybe you won't. There are even some religious groups who claim Christ who would say that you cannot have any sort of confidence. It is still, to my understanding, official Roman Catholic doctrine from the Council of Trent right in their sixth session, if you want to go and look it up, sections 12 and 16, if you claim to have any sort of assurance of salvation, let that person be declared anathema, they say. And that word anathema means excommunicate them, cast them out of the church, kick them out until they repent, until they change their mind and come back. No assurance, no confidence. Surely, surely it's the height of arrogance to say that you can know and you can know for sure that you're going to be in heaven. Who are you to know that, to claim that? Who am I? What could possibly produce such certainty? Now, as it turns out, surprise, surprise, we're talking about the Holy Spirit today in our passage. And the Holy Spirit has quite a lot to say to that question. Now, we're headed that way. That's where we're going to end up answering that question. But we need to do some work before we get there. We need to make sure that we're being faithful to what's in front of us. 
So we're in Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles closed, worth opening them again. Page 1133, Ephesians chapter 1. And today we're up to verses 13 and 14. We've been working through them for a while now. Joe tells me that next week is possibly our last one. We're going to do 15 to 23 in one big hit. And we hit verse 13. Now, I want to begin by doing a little bit of work in this passage, a little bit of comprehension. Because reading it, to me, there's a couple of things that jump out straight away. Uh, two things. Now, if you're note-taker, of course, there's space in your outline. There's a bit of a, uh, an outline of what I'm going to say as well. We're going to cover a lot, so please take notes. The first thing out of these two, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, begins like this. And you also were included in Christ. Now, immediately I think, who's the you? I don't know if that stood out to you as we read it. All the rest of the chapter so far has been we. We, 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 we. For he chose us, which is freely given us. In him we, he made known to us. In him we were also chosen. In order that we, in verse 12, who were the first to hope. Who's the we and who's the you? It'll become, become clear why I think this is important in a moment, but when reading the Bible, it's important to pay attention to those sorts of things. Who could it be? Well, I think there's two possibilities. Uh, the first one is less likely. The second one, I'm convinced, is correct. I'll give you the less likely one first. It could be that Paul is saying, we apostles, we the first Christians, we the ones who were with Jesus, and then you who became Christian later. It could be that. I don't think there's very much in the passage that suggests that's the case. More likely is that Paul means we Jews, we Jewish Christians, and you Gentiles, you non-Jews who became Christians later. I mean, it's, it's all there in the book of Ephesians. The whole way through it, there's this Jew-Gentile divide. Do you, do you remember the mystery from a couple... I mean, this is verse 9. Right? This is going back two weeks, three weeks now. Do you remember what the mystery was? Anyone remember? That the Gentiles were included. That was the secret that was hidden once and has now been revealed. That all the things that Israel had, all the things that God promised his people, have now been extended to include the non-Jews. And so Paul says, we were chosen, verse 12, we the first to hope in Christ, in the Jewish Messiah, and you also were included. In fact, you could say all of verses 3 to 11 and 12 are about the Jews. All of these blessings, all of these promises, all of them are given to Israel, to the true Israel, who are the Jewish Christians, and yet we are included. We are allowed in. Now it's important to make the distinction between we and you because it sets the background. Paul has in mind the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, when he is speaking of these blessings. Okay, this first passage thing. Second passage thing. The translation of verse 13. Now I don't normally do this, I don't particularly like doing this because I don't want to undermine confidence in our English translations. The NIV is a fantastic translation. You can have great confidence in it. However, I think that in verse 13 they've done us a disservice. 
you remember what Joe said? All of this is one long sentence. And to make it readable, they've put full stops in and they've broken it up into different ideas. And so verse 13 in this translation reads like this, right? Here it is, verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Now what it does, it breaks it up into two different ideas. Hearing the gospel, you were included into Christ. That's one idea. Believing, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's the other idea. In the Greek, they are both one. It goes a little bit more like this. In Christ, hearing. In Christ, believing, you were sealed. The main action is being sealed with the Holy Spirit as we hear and as we believe. Do you get the distinction? They're not two separate actions that happen one, then the other, or in different occurrence. They happen, the one action is the being sealed by the Holy Spirit, hearing and believing. Now we hear a message and we believe it. That's not just believing facts. It's not just saying, yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a belief that requires action. In fact, the word is having faith and trusting ourselves. And as we hear and believe, so we were sealed. And sealed, you notice, with a promised Holy Spirit. What promise? What was promised about the Holy Spirit? What are we expecting to receive? Well, in order to find out that promise, we need to go back in the Bible, find out where it was. Now, Jesus says it is God's, the Father's promised Holy Spirit. In fact, we go right back into the Old Testament to find what the promise of the Holy Spirit was. Now, when you go into the Old Testament to look up the Holy Spirit, it's remarkable how frequently he appears. Like Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the second verse in the Bible, the Spirit is there. Malachi chapter 2, the second last chapter in the Old Testament. The Spirit is there. He's there throughout the whole of the Old Testament, doing all sorts of things. In the Psalms, he's spoken of as being the source of life and creation. He's spoken of as a teacher and as a guide. But by far, the majority of the references to the Holy Spirit are about the Spirit being given to particular people at particular times, for very specific purposes. I'll give you a whole stack of examples. We could look, I mean, there's no end of them, right? Let me give you just a few. Moses. Moses was given the Spirit to lead Israel. And when it gets to the time that they think, actually, he can't do it on his own anymore, fair enough, one bloke being the pastor for 500,000 people. I mean, you know, we've got two for 250. They thought Moses probably can't handle it, so they brought 70 other blokes in. Still not a great ratio, but the spirit that was on Moses gets divided and all 70 get some of it, that they might lead Israel. We hit the judges. The judges were given of the spirit. You know any famous judges? I mean, Samson, right? He's probably the, the most famous of all. Remember Samson, the bloke who grew his hair long and, uh, and, and was super buff? Whenever the spirit came on him, what happened? Superhuman strength. Boom. And he'd go and kill a couple of hundred of their enemies. 
somehow it was all tied to the length of his hair. I keep saying to Adrena, let me grow my hair long, right? And I'll become kind of, you know, but I haven't convinced her yet. There is one photo somewhere of me with my hair around about here. I, I couldn't find it. Sorry, I tried to for today, but you're probably glad of that. Samson gets the spirit. He gets super strength as he leads Israel. Gideon, another one of the judges, right? He gets the spirit. What does he do? He goes and plays the trumpet. Now, somehow trumpet playing is a spirit endeavor. If you're a bad muser, maybe that's... Anyway, the prophets, right? Prophet after prophet after... Yeah, we've got a trombone player here, I believe. He's even maybe spirit-filled, I don't know. Uh, the prophets, they spoke as the spirit gave them the words of God. And in fact, a lot of the prophets were just your average Joe going about their job, wanted nothing to do with his being a prophet business until the Spirit of God came on him and said, this is what you're going to do. Given to special people to do all kinds of things. It's a fascinating story in 1 Samuel 19. Uh, Saul and David, you remember very famous kings of Israel. Saul was the first king and David was going to be the second king. And Saul didn't really like it that David was going to be the second king. So he looked for every opportunity he could to kill him, as you do, right? And, and one day he found out that David was hiding in some caves and he thought, brilliant. I know where he is, we're going to pin him down, we're going to kill him. So he sent a bunch of his crack troops. And off they went and here's the cave and there's this little township just before the cave. And and Saul's crack troops get into the town and they meet this group of people who are prophesying and they think to themselves, let's go and start prophesying. And off they go and join the conga line and they get totally distracted. And Saul thinks, no, that's no good. He sends his second group and the troops come through and they hit the town and the Spirit of God gets on them and they go off prophesying too. And he thinks, the third group, third time lucky, this can't go on. And the third group joins, and the third group, the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they go off prophesying. And Saul thinks, I've had enough of this, I'm going to go do it myself. And Saul goes, and then he enters the town, what happens? The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he joins the conga line and goes off prophesying. It's extraordinary. The Spirit gave skill to craftsmen when they were going to build the ark of the covenant. Bezalel and the others in Exodus 31 are given skill in metalworking and woodworking. Time and again in the Old Testament, the Spirit gave extraordinary power to the people of God when they needed it in certain individuals. Is that what we're supposed to expect? Well, what we want to look for is what's promised. Remember, it is the promised Holy Spirit that we receive. What is promised about him? Now turn back to Ezekiel 36, that first reading that we had for us. Ezekiel 36. Because a whole bunch of the promises are in there. There's other passages as well, but this is one of them. Page 840. I'm not going to read through the whole thing again, but I just want to point out a couple of verses for you as we go. I want to highlight five things that happen as the Spirit comes. Five promises that we have. Our first one down in verse 31, Ezekiel 36 and 31. Then God says, you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sin and detestable practices. The first promise of what the Spirit will do is he will bring knowledge of sin. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
And it's not just that he's going to show us. He's going to, oh, yeah, well, these are the commandments and here's the things you've got to know about. He will show it to us in our own lives such that we will loathe the sin that is there. To those who are perishing, he will show you need a saviour. Secondly, he will bring cleansing from sin. Right back up in verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Or down in verse 29, I will save you from all your uncleanness. Now remember, this happens in Christ. Okay, It's not outside of Jesus that the Spirit does this. In Christ we receive forgiveness from sins, redemption, the purchase. And yet the Spirit brings it and is involved. He brings knowledge of sin. He brings cleansing from sin as he unites us with Christ. Thirdly, he fixes the problem that Israel had. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Verse 26 is just a beautiful, beautiful passage. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Israel, time and again, saved from the consequences of their sin, once again turning back to it because of hearts that were far from God. The Spirit will bring knowledge of sin. He will bring cleansing from sin and he will bring a new heart that seeks to love and obey God. No longer will they teach one another, but I will teach them. The least of them will know me. Fourthly, the Spirit will bring resurrection. As there in Ezekiel 37, we didn't read that passage, uh, it's very famous, the, the valley of dry bones, you might have heard that kind of imagery before. God takes Ezekiel and puts him in a valley and he sees before him human bones. And God says that is the nation of Israel, dead and cut off. And then he says to Ezekiel, prophesy, prophesy to the bones, and they all form back up into people. And then he says, prophesy to the wind, prophesy to the spirit. And it enters into and brings life to God's people. Ezekiel 37 verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. The Spirit brings resurrection, life to the dead, to the dead like you and me, dead in sin, cut off, brought back to life. And actually, there's one more at the end of verse 14 there. I will settle you in your own land. Right there, we have the little promise of inheritance. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But see, so far, all of these promises have been to Israel. Do we have anyone who is Jewish in the room? Anyone whose mother was Jewish? So the, the promises aren't for us. Or are they? Right, Joel chapter 2, the promise is, I will pour my spirit out on all nations. That's what Peter refers to in Acts at Pentecost when he looks at the crowds that the Spirit is poured upon them. He says, this is what Joel spoke about, as God's Spirit is given to all who come to him in Christ. 
What an extraordinary promise from God. My Holy Spirit will bring knowledge of sin, will bring cleansing from sin, will give a new heart and a new spirit, will bring resurrection from the dead to all nations. He will fix the problem of Israel. And it doesn't end there. It's like the steak knives at the end of the deal. There's more. Now come back to Ephesians 1 again. Back to Ephesians 1. See, we're marked in him with a seal. This promised Holy Spirit. This The brand of God, if you like. It's, it's kind of the cattle brand, right? The, the, the tattoo, HS, Holy Spirit. We are God's. The slave who is marked with the mark of his master. But this isn't just a mark. Notice what this seal does in verse 14. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, until God comes back to finally take us home. See, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to specific people at specific times, and sometimes even that Spirit was taken away. That happened to Saul. But in Christ, the Spirit is given as a deposit, as a guarantee of what is to come. Who uses lay-by? Anyone use lay-by anymore? It's kind of, you know how it works, right? You see something you want, you think, I can't afford it yet, um, or I want to pay it off in installments or whatever it is, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go put a deposit down, they'll sort of decide for me, and then I'll come back later and redeem it. I'll, I'll buy it back, I'll buy the rest of it for myself. And lay-by kind of works both ways. Because the person who puts the deposit down is saying, that is mine. That, that's what I set it aside for you. However, the seller knows that because the deposit has been put down, they're going to get the rest of their money too. Now the Holy Spirit is God's lay-by. He's put the deposit on us saying, that is mine. He is mine. She is mine. And I will come back to claim them. But it works the other way because we get the, we get the down payment that says we're going to get the rest. We will receive our inheritance. Now I have five implications, five areas that I want to talk about. Let's come back to our starting question. How can I be confident that I'm going to heaven? Is, is it possible to do such a thing? Isn't it just sheer arrogance? Well, the answer is, if you want to be confident that you're going to go to heaven, you need to have the Holy Spirit. There's the answer. If you have the Holy Spirit, he is the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. He is the seal marking that you are God's. And can I suggest that it is not arrogant to say that that gives us confidence of heaven? In fact, it's the other way around. But to say that you can't possibly know is an insult to God. It says to God, your seal, it's not really trustworthy. Oh, you've given us a deposit, but we don't think that's enough. You've got to put more of a down payment on. To say to God, uh, well, we can't really know if we're yours or not, is to say that he is a liar. For God has said to us, my spirit is the down payment. My spirit is the seal. 
It's not arrogant to say, I am a slave who has been marked by his owner. I am God's and he has branded me such that I know he will return to get me. Okay, well, if the way to be confident about going to heaven is you have to have the Spirit, secondly then, how do I get the Spirit? Fair enough. Now, it's in our passage, verse 13, remember? Hearing the word of truth, the gospel, hearing and believing, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is the work of the Spirit. So back in chapter 4, verse 18, this is how Paul describes us before we were Christians. He says, They, the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to the hardening of their heart. You can't hear and believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. To hear and to believe is his work. Are you hearing the gospel as truth? Are you believing it for salvation? Then you are sealed. Now, there are some groups, some so-called Christian groups, who have different views on the Holy Spirit. You may be aware of that. And for some of them, becoming a Christian and receiving the Spirit are two different events that can happen differently in different points of time. And yet here we see them interwoven. The hearing and the believing of the gospel happen concurrently with the sealing in the Spirit. They're one event. They are joined together. Furthermore, some people will say that you need to get more of the Spirit or different Spirit or other Spirit things. And I wonder what more do they want than what was promised? The one who comes and shows us sin, brings cleansing, transforms hearts that they may live and please for God, who resurrects the dead into new life. If you put the word just anywhere in any of that, you need to go back and consider your own sinfulness. How do I get the Spirit? Hear the Gospel and believe. Well, how do I know I have it? I mean, that's the thing, right? If you're telling me that I need to have the Spirit in order to get into heaven, thirdly then, how do I know I have it? And again, it's in the passage. Are you hearing the Gospel as truth? And are you believing it? Now, let's go back to that distinction, that hearing, hearing, hearing a word, hearing a message. So there are some messages that are just a fact, and you can kind of assent or not assent to that fact, right? Uh, the, the sun goes around the earth, right? There's a fact, and you can believe it or not believe it, right? as, as you choose. In fact, it would be very good of you not to believe it, because the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth goes around the sun. And, you know, no one was quite awake enough to pick that up, but that's okay. You can hear that. And you can choose to believe it or not. doesn't really matter. makes no difference. There are some messages that have built into them the requirement that you act. Imagine one day you're walking home, you come home from work and you decide to take the shortcut and you're going to walk along the train tracks. Now you kind of can't do it here, right? They've got big walls and whatever. But you're out in the country, you're walking home along the train tracks. Maybe you've got your music on or something. And someone says to you, hey, there's a train coming behind you. Now, that's the kind of message that has built into it the requirement that you act. If you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe you, and you just keep walking along the tracks like nothing matters, well, are you really believing? 
Are you entrusting yourself to them? No, you're not. The gospel is a message that has built into it a call to respond. Jesus is Lord. Will you come to him now? Or will you be made to come to him then? Right? There's, it's, the, the call to action is built into it. To believe the gospel doesn't just mean to say, oh yeah, yeah God's there, that's nice. God exists, so I believe that. Yeah, oh Jesus, yeah, that's good, that's good. To believe is to respond, to entrust ourselves into Christ. How do you know you have the Spirit? Are you hearing? Are you believing? Now there's other things in the, in the Bible we could talk about. Right? We could talk about the hope that the Spirit brings. Without the Spirit we have no hope. With the Spirit we have all the hope of the children of God. We could talk about the fruits of the Spirit and, and the work that it brings. Remember it gives us a new heart and that heart then flows out into right living. All of those are things as well. But in this passage the focus here is on the Gospel. Have you heard the word of truth? Have you believed? Then you are sealed by God. Well, okay, fourthly, what does it mean to have the Spirit? I mean, you, you gave us all these examples, David, of really cool Old Testament superpowers. Do I get them? I mean, can I get the super strength, the trumpet playing, the craftsmanship? I don't know, the prophesying, the words, the tongues. The, do, do I get? Is that what it means to have the Spirit? You've got to go back and look at what's promised. Is it possible for the Spirit to give you any of those things? Yes. He can and he has. And may well, he will. That's God's decision to do that. But he hasn't promised you any of those things. What he has promised you is that the Spirit will teach you about your sin and connect you to Jesus, that you will have forgiveness and cleansing. He'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. He will bring you back to life from the dead. Do you want to know the thing that it mean, what it means to have the Spirit? It means having the security of knowing that you belong to Jesus forever. That's what it means to have the Spirit. To know that God himself lives in you. The down payment that guarantees you are his and he's yours. The Holy Spirit is the seal that you belong to him. He's lay by. The Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance to come. And so fifthly, how should we respond? Well, it's no surprise, right? The passage ends to the praise of his glory. How could we do anything other than praise this extraordinary gift of God? His own spirit placed inside of us. I was trying to think in preparation for this sermon, what was the most lavish gift my dad ever gave me? You might want to think about that one for a moment. What's the most lavish gift your dad ever gave you? I was scratching my head. I think it has to have been my second bicycle. I don't know if you remember those days. My first bike was this little beaten up blue BMX. It must have been someone's hand-me-down. I put pegs on the back and the front just for fun times, you know, as you do. But my second bike, 
Mum and Dad saved up. I mean, we, we weren't rich, right? We were quite poor missionaries. We didn't have money to buy opulent gifts. So they saved up and they bought me this new, it was orange with little white kind of flecks, a mountain bike. It had three speeds. I was the talk of the town. I was the coolest kid on the street. And that bike, it changed my life. I loved it. I rode it everywhere. I was going to go visit a mate who lived half a block away on the bike, ride down there, hop off the bike, how you going, back on the bike, back home. I'd just do laps up and down after school every day. I love that bike. It was the best gift that Dad ever gave me. Do you know what the problem was, though? I got so caught up with the gift that I forgot the giver. Not, not once did I say to my friends, isn't my dad so generous? Doesn't my dad love me? Look what he gave me. He sacrificed for me that I might have this. Isn't that what we do? So caught up in the good gifts God gives us. And we get caught up in the little gifts too. The blessings of this world, the comforts, the friends, the job, the money. The, we get so, it's like getting caught up with trinkets when you've been promised the whole estate. How could we do anything but praise? Yeah, praise sounds very religious, right? Tell people. How can we do anything but tell other people about the generosity of our Father? Someone gave you a million bucks today. I can guarantee that for the next week, or maybe at least until you start spending it, but let's run for the next week, you would do nothing but tell other people about that person's journey. He gave me a million bucks. Can you believe it? I've been able to do this and this and this with it, and he's so generous. And our Heavenly Father, who has given us the inheritance that is the entire universe in His Son, and how rarely we hear from our own lips, I love my Father. He's so generous. His grace is extraordinary. Do we say that to Christians, let alone to those who don't know Jesus? Are we so caught up with the gift that we forget the giver? For the Holy Spirit promised to us is God's seal. He brings with him the knowledge of our sin, the cleanliness of Christ's death into our lives, the new heart and the new spirit that transform us from within, resurrection from death to life, promised to all nations, the guarantee that we are God's and he's ours. Let's live to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before you we are not worthy. Sinners, Gentiles, people who are outside of your people and your promises, lost, dead, and cut off. And Father, it was your generosity, only your generosity, that led you to include us, to extend those promises to us in Christ. And so hearing and believing, Father, you sealed us with your spirit. You gave to your children the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You are extraordinary, Father. 
your generosity, your love, your gifts, incomparable. Father, we're sorry that so often we take your gifts and we run. We enjoy them, we delight in them, and we completely forget the giver. We ask, please, Father, that you would keep before each one of us the confidence, the certainty, the assurance of knowing where we're going next. And out of that assurance that we might speak to all, that we might praise you to all for your loving grace. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing.